Welcome back to the Learnetto podcast where I speak to awesome programmers, designers and marketers so you can learn from their experiences. Check out all our episodes on learnetto.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, also have a look at the amazing courses on making web apps, designing mobile apps, growing your startup and more that we have launched this week. And don't forget to sign up to our newsletter to get exclusive discounts on courses and new podcast episodes right in your inbox. Today I'm speaking with Matt Isherwood, a user experience designer and instructor based in London. Matt is a UX design consultant specializing in e-commerce, marketplace websites and mobile apps. He has years of experience in the luxury sector and working on UX strategy with startups. Matt writes a very popular and educational blog on his site mattish.com where he teaches people about optimizing their software user experience through data-driven design. Let's hear Matt's story. Hi man, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining me today. I've been reading your blog for a while, so I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Would you like to start by introducing yourself to our audience? Yeah, sure. No, yeah, it's good to be here. So I'm Matt. I'm a UX designer, so UX design consultant, and also an instructor and writer. I'm doing more, and more sort of writing and things, and I do a lot of work with startups, mostly in the kind of e-commerce or marketplace space. Although not only that, but that's kind of where I've sort of specialised, and that's generally companies in London or Europe. Before that, uh, so I've been doing this for about the last year or so been out on my own doing this before that i spent about three and a half years with a company called one fine stay we were kind of a startup when i joined and grew rapidly over the time i was there and whilst i was there i was the ux designer on the website and also ended up product managing the website for a few years as well so that was a really good sort of crash course in learning a lot of how startups work and startups grow that sounds great yeah one fine stay yeah it's one of the big success stories from london isn't it so how let's go back and like tell me a bit about how how did you get into design in the first place so I guess it's really come from since school, to be honest. I guess I was lucky in that I knew pretty early on what I wanted to do. As soon as I found this thing called graphic design, I knew that's what I wanted to get into. I was always into kind of art and drawing and stuff at school. And kind of graphic design seemed like a way you could actually, I guess, have a career or something in that without the sort of vague riskiness of doing art as a sort of thing. But also I really like the way it kind of merged sort of design as a good thing, like art and science. It's like a nice sense of the two. There's a kind of rules to it, so you need some kind of inspiration in there. So I ended up doing my degree in graphic design, which I loved, but I wasn't really doing anything to do with web design at that point. I didn't really think I did any web-based projects. Where did um, you do your degree? That was in Falmouth, so I'm in mean, Cornwall. Oh, yeah. Uh, Falmouth. It was a sort of College of Arts when I started there, now all kind of university, but it's got very good sort of, yeah, artsy sort of. Yeah, stuff. yeah, I know a couple of people who, who did, uh, who studied design there, actually. Nice, yeah. Yeah, it was a great place. It was kind of really kind of isolated, sort of separate down out of the way in Cornwall, a really good kind of atmosphere between all the students and kind of quite a collaborative way of working, which uh, I really enjoyed. But anyway, yeah, so I didn't really do much on in terms of web design. I came out, it wasn't until a couple of years after university when I managed to land a job at the BB on their actually on their design trainee scheme where they kind of taught me UX design from scratch really it was a great place to go and learn and kind of learn get experience on the job and be taken I worked across different teams from like the journalism team to the audio music team and eventually spending a couple of years at the world service so working on all sorts of different language sites, which is a really interesting challenge. But yeah, it was great. They, I guess at the time, that was in like 2008 when I started there, and they had a team of, I don't know, 100 or 150 UX designers and wow. information architects and people like that. And I think they're probably one of the few people who were doing UX design that early on. It's going to become a lot more popular now. At the time, certainly at that scale, I don't think many other people in the UK. When was that? Which year? That was 2008 when I started. 2008, there. yeah, yeah, that's definitely quite early. Yeah, certainly for the UK, I think they were quite pioneering. It's something that probably was existing, you know, in the US and certainly in Silicon Valley kind of way. But yeah, it was a really good way of learning about accessibility and the importance of designing for everybody. Okay, great. And 
But now your focus is more on sort of data-driven design and, and business-focused design. How yeah. did you, when did you decide to move to that area? Well, that's something that's kind of evolved over the last year or so, I'd say, since becoming kind of freelance consultant, I realized I needed to kind of come up with a niche, pick my niche to work in what I was going to kind of position myself as. And I think it's really important to do that as a freelancer, as it's going to always going to be harder to get hired if you just sort of pitch yourself as a generic designer, just like I'm a UX designer. Because if I'm a client and I have an e-commerce site, who am I going to hire? Am I going to hire the guy who calls himself an all-rounder Mm-hmm. or someone who says they're an e-commerce UX designer will have a specialism. So it was kind of deciding I had to do that. And then it took a little bit of time to kind of work out what it is I wanted to sort of, or how to position myself. My website's gone through quite a few iterations in the last year or so. I I've see. tried different things like calling myself a remote UX designer, lean UX designer. But I think those are really just ways of working and not really a specialism. You know, you mm-hmm. need to come up with something came up with an output that really benefits benefits the client. And they, I think they can see the value in being data-driven. They understand they want to do that. And they can see the value in having someone who knows e-commerce and understands that. So it took me a while to get there. And it kind of was always there, actually, I think, because I've been teaching workshops in those subjects with General Assembly for the last three years or so. It's one of those things that's kind of should staring me in the face, I guess, e-commerce and data-driven UX kind of made a lot of sense. But it took me a while to realize, actually, just be simple, just <laughs> push myself on those. But right. Area, if you want a bit, a bit more further reading, I recommend Brennan Dunn at doubleyourfreelancing.com. He writes quite a lot about Yeah, it. yeah, he writes really great stuff. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely include this link in the show notes. Did you, I mean, why did you sure. pick up e-commerce specifically? Was that because you worked at One Fine Stay or? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Because I was there, I was working on what we called the e-commerce site at the time. So there was quite a big product at One Fine Stay. So for those who don't know, One Fine Stay, kind of a high-end Airbnb, kind of. It's a bit more complex than that. There's more of a service side of the design Mm -hmm. but there was a lot of products that were back end and dealing with guests during stay but i tended to look after the front end which is like the e-commerce site selling the holidays selling the property to people to stay in so that was where i'd spent the last kind of three years really and so it felt natural to kind of follow on from that and i realized that's kind of what interested me i've always had a kind of i've definitely had a growing interest in the sort of psychology of selling online as well Mm -hmm. and kind of convince people to pay for things and trust you and part with their cash online yeah i find you're in a way actually you're positioning quite unique because I, I there are a lot of people who are sort of conversion rates uh, optimization specialists and who, who yeah. specifically work with e-commerce and things but there are, I haven't seen many designers who specialize in that so that's uh, that seems like a very useful positioning yeah. so on your on your website you mentioned that you have three three main areas of focus data driven design e-commerce and mobile apps is that right yeah. so tell me a bit more about how that works and wh- why you focus on the on uh, on those uh, on that combination of those three things so the data-driven ux design has kind of come from again so a lot of it came out of this workshop i've been teaching for a while which is called data-driven ux design on a budget and it's all the kind of tools i sort of taught myself and ways of working i taught myself as a sole ux designer at a startup who also need realized that as i was kind of transitioning to become a kind of product manager i realized i needed to understand how to use things like google analytics and understand how to incorporate some quantitative data into my process. But I also am a real sort of advocate of qualitative data and pairing the two up and doing a lot with those two. And so doing remote testing and other ways you can get both of them working well together. So yeah, that kind of is why I kind of position, that's kind of how I work, I guess, the data-driven UX thing, kind of showing that I well, I believe that any designer now has to be able to kind of back up their results with showing that you're improving conversion or you're improving something on the site. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how a lot of clients 
are gradually coming around to understanding that and working that way. And I think it's quite healthy to move away from this idea of, oh, we're just going to do a redesign project that's going to last yeah. just because we've got a few months available, rather than saying, okay, this is what we want to improve, this is what we're going to work towards to get there. And it might take a couple of weeks, it might take a few months, whatever the whatever it takes to get there is more important. So there's that, and then the e-commerce is kind of how I position myself as the kind of my specialist area, I guess, thinking mm-hmm. about designing for e-commerce. And then mobile is just the thing, almost as an area that I was kind of lacking in, I'd say, a couple of years ago. And I've just made a concerted effort to be working more on mobile projects and teaching myself more. So I thought, right, that's going to be an area of focus as well. So I've kind of got it down to these three areas of focus any more than that. And I think it would get a bit Yeah, messy. well, then it's not a focus anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It stops being so. <laughs> I mean, but, and, and, I mean, mobile is very, very relevant to e-commerce, right? I yeah. mean, the, the yeah. share of uh, sales on mobile is just, it's just going crazy. Oh, it's going. I think that mobile with the, um, almost like the epitome of the challenge of UX design, because there's so little... Yeah. There's no more kind of sort of, you know, half-assing it and messing around with putting loads of things on the screen. You've got so little screen space, you've really got to kind of define exactly what your product is and exactly how it works in a really small space. Yeah, actually, I mean, now that you touch on it, that, that is an interesting topic. Like, can you can you talk a bit about, in your experience, what's the big difference you've seen designing for the web or the desktop web versus designing for mobile apps? Yeah, I guess it's just that kind of it forces people to make decisions like clients and teams that you work with to make decisions a lot more about what is important and what is it you're trying to do because you realize that people are probably going to spend less time doing this task on mobile you're so broken up by distractions in what you're doing you constantly got to be aware that the reality of what you're designing for is a platform where people are constantly being invaded by notifications or they've got the real world going on around them so you've really got to focus a lot more and try and understand what's the most important thing whereas on the web i guess you can be a bit slower and you realize that potentially people are going to take several trips to your website before converting whereas the mobile side is much more functional i want to do a job now i want to do it's task-based i'll tell them of task oriented right Roughly, that's kind of one way. I mean, it's not necessarily that simple every time, but that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Can you give us some examples of interesting projects, mobile or or even desktop web, that you've worked on recently with clients? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a couple of examples. So one, a web-based one that I've been working on uh, is with a company called uh, Incrediblue. That's so like Incredible, but blue instead. Okay. Uh, com. They're actually a Greek company. I've been working remotely with them for the last year or so and done a few iterations and version of their website um, and basically it's a site that allows you to book yacht holidays or like sailing holidays for people who've basically really aimed at people who've never been on a sailing holiday before they sort you out with a captain and a boat and the sort of itinerary and it's actually relatively affordable it's not a lot of people have sort of been priced out thinking it's a really scary expensive holiday actually it works out you know you can go on a decent week-long holiday for about 500 euros per person but what i really enjoyed about that that was a great product of trying to a lot of that was about distilling it down they started off almost like an airbnb for yachts before realizing that most people if they're a beginner user of a yachting holiday don't actually know what yacht they want to take they want to be told what they need to do and need to be handheld a lot more mm-hmm. through the process so it was a lot more about refining that and understanding how to take people through that journey and also just the images are great on that site and they had a great kind of visual design and great look and it was a really enjoyable site to use a test because Every time, users were just being blown away by how great the images were and really enjoying just experiencing themselves on the site, which is an easy thing to overlook, I think, and just realise how much work great imagery can do. And then a sort of a flip side, a totally different example, I guess, is one that I've been working with this year. A very small startup, very new company called Drover, and they are kind of, they're kind of an Uber for Uber drivers. So it kind okay. of goes, <laughs> it's kind of going really almost inception. Yeah, it's very meta. Basically, they allow people who want to be Uber drivers but don't own a car to be able to rent one by the shift or by the week. Um, Oh, I see. 
So it's kind of great for these kind of people who are in this gig economy and this one actually one of the hardest things to get hold of is the car and that's going to be their biggest outlet and biggest expense. But it's opening it up to a wider audience of people who can now become drivers. And they're a partner that they've partnered with Uber. And that's been really interesting because we've been doing bits of stuff on the website, but a lot I've been working on the app, which is upcoming. I've done a lot of the design work. It's not out yet, but it's going to be interesting because it's a process where we have a bit more control over the user's experience all the way from like booking a car to drive all the way through to in future we're going to be developing features around how what they do in in when they come to make the booking when they come to start the booking when they're driving when they come to drop the car off you've got that whole kind of customer life cycle there which is really interesting and also what's kind of cool is their office is up in Dalston and they just have an, they have an old shop as their office so they've come nice. onto the street front and there's drivers dropping in all the time so you're really close to your users oh we wow to do quick kind of user testing and grab them to one side and test out prototypes with them so it's really nice to be able to feel the sort of understand pretty quickly what the pains are of the users and see how you can change it i've really enjoyed that side of things yeah that sounds that sounds a very unique interesting project yeah you we mentioned user testing can you talk a little bit about how you go about it and can you recommend maybe some tools for for our listeners that they could use yeah sure i mean i'm a big fan of remote user testing actually I do I've done a lot of that over the last few years and which basically means when the user isn't present with you you don't actually have to be sat down with them in a lab or in a room they can be at their computer or at their mobile wherever they are normally and doing the test as they would do and I think it's really impressive to sort of realize actually you don't need a moderator very often in user test people are actually pretty good you can get a lot of great data of just watching people use the site on their own and it's much more realistic you're much more likely to see them doing things as they would do them for real and you'd hear real unvarnished feedback they're not worried about offending you or being polite they're just like if it doesn't work they're going to say it doesn't work and the tool i use mainly for that is usertesting.com i'm a big fan of usertesting.com it's great for just you can okay. set up a test you can set up a test in the morning and by the afternoon you can have back all your test results they all come back in as videos of users either rolling around your website or you can do it on mobile apps as well and you get a video with them speaking so you can hear their thoughts them moving around the product and then you can make clips from that video really quickly and easily put those clips into highlight reels which is great for sharing with clients or great for so it's great for working when you're working remotely with clients sharing that kind of content around really easily and also even if you're working with kind of bigger companies where there maybe is management involved and they want to see a bit of user testing but they have no time you can put together a quick highlights reel of your user test and just send it to them and say look if you've got 10 minutes watch this these are the key things you need to know about how your site's got problems or where you need to improve and if you and it does cost a little bit of money to use usertesting.com it was at about $50 per test which is actually pretty reasonable I'd say but if you want to give it a dabble beforehand, if you go to peak.usertesting.com, you can try out up to three sort of free tests on there, three okay, cool. five-minute long tests. So that's a quick way if you want to just practice and have a go and see what the system, how it works. That's peek.usertesting.com. Yeah, that sounds great. I will add that link to the show notes. Can you give us an example of an interesting user test you ran recently? Maybe something that surprised you? Wow, okay. I think uh, there's so many things, I guess, that kind of that you find that you wouldn't expect to understand, you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily expect until you see someone do it. I think one of the things uh, on one of the sites I did, I won't say which one, but they had kind of a a help area, and it suddenly was really easy for people to get into the help area, which was like a, a separate, almost a separate site. And once in there, these users would get trapped. It was something really basic, like there wasn't in the top left, there wasn't a link back to the homepage. <laughs> okay, so we totally trapped in the help area, which was just full of uh, FAQs and questions and its own mini site. They could never get back out to the main site. And you were seeing them trying to complete the task within that 
Hmm. And it would have been so easily avoided had people just, if we just got a link back to the main site. And that was a really quick, easy fix. Often it's some really simple things that you can just change really quickly and it saves people who would actually get totally trapped in a different part of the site they don't mean to be. And things like, really simple things as well, like often it's a thing that some sites do, some sites don't. You know, when if you say click a link, a lot of the times on sort of hotel booking sites, they might open that page in a new tab. Mm-hmm. And I'm always still amazed to see how many people, well, not amazed, but it's kind of surprising, I guess, to see how many people still don't understand that pattern. They don't realize it's opening a new tab. And they always, you know, so many users rely on the back button, their browser Oh, button, I see. And they kind of get trapped because it breaks the back button. They're trying to get back and they can't work out why. It's never been clear that opening a new tab. They don't realize the site's still sat there in another tab. And they're kind of, again, Oh, wow. So those kind of really painful moments when you're sat there thinking, oh, this is so easily avoidable. But it's really useful for sort of motivating change that can be done quite quickly. Right, yeah, wow, okay, I'm going to go and check all the new tab links in my, in my site now, I'd never thought of that. You know, the other one you mentioned about getting trapped in a, in a different, like, subdomain, like a help site okay. or something, that's one of my pet peeves with a lot of startup blogs. They'll right. have their, their start, uh, blog on a blog dot, whatever, startup.com domain, yeah. and... 90% of them never link back to the main site. And, you know, it's fine if you're a techie and you'll type in the URL or you'll Google the site yeah. or something. Yeah. But most people don't. don't yeah, most people don't go near the URL bar. They won't really know what they're doing up there yeah. um, or feel confident doing that. So, yeah, no, exactly. It's, it's crazy, especially if it's in a blog where you're trying to do work to probably promote your company and promote your startup. Yeah, that's the whole point. If someone what, likes your post and they want to find out more about the company, don't make it hard for them. Yeah, you've got to think about that journey. Otherwise, you're just writing content that's going to be lost to the world. You know, it's not giving you any benefit. Yeah. Actually, that that brings me to your blog. Yeah. So talking about user testing specifically, because you write a very educational blog teaching people, you know, lots of useful practical design things. Yeah. Um, and what, I, I was reading your blog and, and you wrote a really interesting and maybe controversial post recently about A-B testing. Do you want yeah. to tell us about that? Yeah, basically, I wrote a piece saying... If you're a small or medium-sized company, you just shouldn't bother with A-B testing. And it was kind of in a way to sort of redress the balance between against all the kind of lean startup-y kind of things where they just talk about A-B testing everything, you know. And, oh, yeah, just put an A-B test on, just run an A-B test. And it's uh, one of those things that actually came from the workshop I taught on data-driven UX design. And I used to teach A-B testing as a part of that. But the more I taught it and the more I learned about it and the more I did A-B testing the more I realize how many kind of caveats there are and you sort of say, yeah, you can run an A-B test, but you need to be careful because of this or this. Mainly you need to be careful. You need to make sure you have a good amount of traffic. You need to make sure you're running a really fair test. You need to make sure everything's kind of equally set up and balanced. And the more I was talking about it, the more I got uneasy telling people that they should do it. And I realized that actually, you know, maybe a lot of people just shouldn't do it. It's kind of a case of a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. When people maybe just know how to set up an A-B test. They could be running really bad A/B tests, and that's what I was doing initially. Actually, when I first started using it, I was running a lot of bad A/B tests. We weren't getting to a significant number of people through the test, so we couldn't really say for sure if these were results. But we were make, we were sort of shouting about how good the results were. And so I just think it's one of those things that people need to be really careful of. It's easy to just kind of set up an A/B test quickly, say, "Oh, look, we've got a winner," and then and then think you've done your work. Whereas it's really heavy statistics are involved in A-B testing. There's a lot to understand. I think unless you're a data scientist or unless you've got that kind of setup, which is a really robust A-B testing setup, it can be more dangerous than not doing it. And I think actually for a lot of small companies or startups, they don't have that kind of traffic, much better off doing a user testing program. Set up a program of user testing, do regular user tests. You're going to get way richer data, way more understanding of what works, what doesn't. Just by watching users move around your site, you'll see 
what works and what doesn't. You don't need to run an A-B test for months or so to get the traffic you need to understand whether something's better than something else. I'd say for a lot of companies, they should be you know, looking at user testing rather than this kind of A-B testing. And I understand why A-B testing has become so sort of popular because it gives just such great headlines. You know? It gives so many great blog posts where they can say, oh, we increased conversion by 30% on this. And then I'm always left thinking, did you though, really? What, what are your numbers? Can you publish your numbers? Let's have a look. Were they really significant? Were they meaningful? Or did you just run it with like 100 people or something? Yeah, that's, it's, like you said, it's a very complex you know, statistics topic, really. But I mean, I would have thought that tools like Optimizely or Visual Website Optimizer, they would take care of the, that science or the tech part of it. And they tell- do to a degree, and they're increasingly getting better. But I still think a lot of them, they'll tell you if your results are significant but they won't tell you if you've really had enough results necessarily, enough users go through it. So statistical significance is one part of the equation. Um, but you can get significance with very few people going through your test. That's just telling you a measure of difference between the results. Mm-hmm. Really, in most cases, you need a lot more people to go through to be able to be sure that these results are meaningful and going to stand up to like bigger amounts of traffic. And then there's also other things like, oh, are you making sure you're testing with the same kind of traffic each time? So you should really, if you're running a test, you should make sure it's only, say, traffic coming from PPC campaigns, that only those people are seeing it. Because right. different types of traffic can behave really differently. And if you suddenly turn on a new campaign halfway through, it could totally change you know, the kind of traffic you're getting and sort of corrupt your results. There's so many ways you can incidentally and accidentally kind of mess up your results. That you've just got to be... Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, talking about this sort of takes me back to when I used to work in air pollution research where, you know, we were looking at all sorts of like sources of pollution and trying to relate them to health effects. And there's just, you know, in, in, in sort of technical parlance, you call it confounding factors, right? It's just so complicated to tear apart exactly what caused okay. what. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, like you said, it makes for good headlines, but it's hard to yeah. do. Do you have a, a, a number in mind as to at what scale it makes sense to do A-B tests? I guess if you have the kind of traffic, I don't know, if you're looking in the hundreds of thousands of users a month uh, coming through okay. your site, then you are probably look, then you can probably start looking at A-B testing. Yeah. So it's like unique users. If you're getting 100,000 plus, then you're probably going to be able to run some tests in a reasonably quick amount of time. Okay, so talking about your blog a bit more, how do you decide what to write about? Yeah, I guess that's always can feel like a bit of a challenge, but I think one of the things that really helped me was last year when I started. So I've, been, I've had a blog for a few years and it's kind of those things that, you, you know, you maybe write an article every month or two and think and really struggle thinking, what should I write that's important? But last year I made myself write an article a week. And I think that was really useful for kind of just forcing yourself to find something and kind of find something interesting. And I really didn't put a limit on what I'd write about. I wrote a really diverse set of things, some stuff about practical UX design. Also the odd thing, like opinion pieces around like what Twitter's doing and how Facebook are working and things like that. Mm-hmm. Before realizing that actually that's not what I should be writing about because no one, no one really cares what I have what I have to think about that. If I was like a VC in Silicon Valley, then maybe that would be better. <laughs> then you realize actually here's my specialism, what I'm expert in. I've been an instructor in UX design. I know about UX design. I've got these sort of practical skills and tools. That's the kind of stuff that'll be useful that's the kind of stuff people like and it's kind of more evergreen content as well i think if you're teaching something or giving tips and ideas that's always something people can come back to and doesn't sort of date so much so yeah i've already got these kind of specialisms so it's actually kind of and some of the ideas come from questions that people ask when i do teach you know you think oh that's something i haven't covered before that could spin off into its own blog or even just sometimes like i just kind of almost take a slide from one of my talks and realize actually i could really expand on this and say a lot more about it what you kind of gloss over and sort of pass over when you're just talking about in the context of a bigger subject you realize there's a lot more that could be said here so i think it's kind of realizing there's no niche too small that can't be turned into something more to be said and in many ways 
a good blog or article was actually just taking something very narrow and just focusing on that rather than mm-hmm. trying to be everything. So how often do you write now on your blog? So now I do it fortnightly. So yeah, last year I was doing it weekly, which was a really good way of getting myself into it. But then I realized once I sort of found my voice, I guess, and found what I wanted to write about, I realized fortnightly is probably a better ratio where I can focus on making the posts a bit more quality and a bit more kind of considered and that seems like a nice amount and people seem to be happy with that right okay yeah that's i mean yeah i, I love I, I subscribe to your uh, newsletter where i get the yeah, notifications yeah, yeah right. and i love love it definitely learn something new every time i read something so how do you recommend people learn user experience design like if someone's starting out or someone's maybe even already a designer and they want to get more into user experience yeah well, I think it's definitely a practical skill or a practical area. Um, you really need to sort of learn by doing, and it's kind of, and it's something you can't really learn just sort of on your own in the darkroom room so much. You kind of need to sort of get out there and meet with a few people and sort of do a bit of your research side of things and do some testing and dabble in all those kind of things. I think when I've taught the full UX design course in the past uh, at General Assembly, I can tell pretty early on who's going to make it as a good designer mm-hmm. because the first, pretty much the first half of that course is all research. We don't actually sit down and do it. In, I'm doing wireframe or anything until the second half. And so there's some people who come along just expecting it to just be learning some more software skills. And others you come along thinking, oh, we're just going to... If I just sit here and listen to all the lessons, I'll understand everything. But I don't mm. think you, do, you don't really learn until you actually do and actually understand the difficulties of it and get, you know, and try stuff out and work out there's going to be experiments and there's going to be things going wrong. So it's a very practical subject area. So I think your best way is either, you know, I can recommend the General Assembly course. I think that's a well put together course. And also what's really good about it is that the people teaching it are real practitioners who work in the area of UX design and teaching assistants as well. Uh, They're real UX designers. You're getting genuine advice, you know. But that's, you know, if you're not in a city where General Assembly are, then maybe you know, if you've got an employer who's willing to kind of let you move into UX design and try and sort of do that, then it's kind of really about having someone supporting you and saying, yeah, you're free to try this out and do it and meet with users and test stuff out and put prototypes together and put them in front of people. I think that's the really way you learn so much quicker that way. Of course, there's loads of articles out there you can read. Of course, there's plenty of sites you can pick things up, but you're will exponentially improve yourself by just sort of doing and practicing, I think. Great. Yeah, that's, that sounds the right way to go about it. I mean, we have a few courses coming up on design and UX design as well, uh, but we're going to try and make them very project-based so people are actually doing things as they're learning, yeah, like I recommend. Yeah, I think having a project that you care about and you can see the full life cycle of is really important rather than just learning the skills in isolation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, talking about learning, you have written a book on data-driven UX design. Yeah, that's right. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's called Data-Driven UX Design Metrics. And again, it's one of those things that spun out of the workshop I have been teaching for a few years on data-driven UX design. And this kind of covers the more quantitative side of things. So really, it's kind of a guide for designers, UX designers, for how to get the most out of Google Analytics and tools like that. And things that I think a lot of designers are kind of aware of and they think it would be a useful thing to have as part of their kind of armory but are a bit scared of because maybe they're not natural uh, naturally inclined towards like the numbers side of things but yeah I guess I wrote it because I wanted to write a book it's one of the things I've wanted to do for a while and I really like the idea of having my own product that I could kind of sell on my site you know the dream of having passive income when you can sure put something on your site and then just get out oh, people just buying it in the background you don't have to do any work <laughs> there's a lot of work up front it took me over a year to end up putting this book finally together and I went through a long process of it initially really bloated 
And then I realized I had to refine it down. So that's when I just decided to take the quantitative side of things and just focus on that. But I was actually really inspired by the work of Nathan Barry. He's written quite a lot about this. And he wrote a book called Authority, which I can recommend if anyone's interested in writing their own book, uh, which talks about, you know, how you can write something in an area of expertise, how you can set it up and sell it. But the whole process was really just an experiment. I had no great expectations of how many I was going to sell to, you know, how many, how many I was going to push. I had no great aims. I just wanted to get it out there, have a practice at writing, designing, uh, marketing it, and just see how it would go and feel it was all kind of a test for doing more in the future. My aim is to do a few more in the future, and I've actually got another one in the pipeline going to be coming out soon. Oh, great. What's that one about? So that one is going to be on on the mobile side of things. So that one's going to be about iPhone app usability. So this, this one's actually um, based on a series of blog posts I wrote over the last year. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different approach. I'm taking content I've kind of already written and then completely updating it, refreshing it, pulling it all together into a book around I know, all the things you need to think about to make iPhone app usable when designing them. So again, it's a bit, a bit of an experiment. I'm trying to turn it around on a lot quicker timeline as well so mm-hmm. it should be out in may this year and it's a very kind of practical book around showing lots of examples of how you can make a great really usable iphone app so that your users you know are satisfied and want to come back for more again it's kind of a little niche that i spotted i don't think anyone else is really kind of doing this but yeah i've really enjoyed the whole kind of book process and it's something that kind of does give rewards later on and you know now i'm kind of every you know i sell a few books a week and it's a really nice feeling to get that kind of little notification pop up on your phone saying someone's interested in what you've written yeah yeah absolutely it's a, it's a, it is a very satisfying experience I, I wrote a book years ago now on data visualization and it's it's nice to still get the odd email saying that it helped someone learn yeah, something yeah, yeah it's great yeah we uh, look forward to your new book as well yeah it sounds sounds very useful um, i i wanted to take a minute to ask you specifically about your thoughts on online education because uh, here at Lernetto we're running an online education site and you know where we have various courses on all sorts of tech skills specifically related to making and designing and selling products so I, I wanted to find out what you think about online education and where you think it's going yeah it's not something I've got a huge amount of experience in yet but it's definitely something I'm interested in I'm really interested in the possibilities of doing things online and I just think it offers that potential to really open up. I mean, already, you know, through the medium of uh, blogs and books, you're kind of opening up that kind of knowledge to a wider and wider audience. And then with the idea of a course, it's, you know, I like the idea of being, taking users, or like students, really, in this case, taking students through a journey and being able to kind of, you know, handhold them through a journey, give them feedback, open, you know, get them so they actually can learn a skill without necessarily ever having to meet them you can do you know you can reach a lot wider audience but i think i think the skills are, yeah i think it's just going to be something that that's only going to grow and we're going to see more of and i think actually education itself there's been various articles i've read in recent years talking about how education could really flip on its head and actually almost all education could be taught online in the next 10 20 years and it's actually the in-person stuff that you'll pay for and where schools could go down that kind of route to be about you end up paying for the in-person time you do almost everything else is democratized and almost freely available online yeah yeah absolutely i mean yeah i mean i think khan academy kind of pioneered that concept of turning the classroom upside down yeah yeah no that's that's really interesting to hear your thoughts that's all the formal questions i have for you today uh, okay. just one final thing uh, where can people find you online to follow your work and, and you yeah um you can come and Find me at mattish.com. That's my website where I've got loads of articles now on there on the three subject areas we were talking about. And you've got various places you can sign up for my newsletter. But if you're interested in that directly, that's mattish.com slash newsletter. And that'll get you on my mailing list where you get my 
every two weeks you'll get an update of my latest article and you'll get discounts for my new books and things like that. Uh, also, I'm at Ishmat on Twitter. So that's the reverse of my domain name. Okay, great. Thank you. We'll, we'll add links to all of those things in the, in the show notes. Um, well, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been really interesting talking to you. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, been great to be on here. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Yeah, sure. Thanks very much. Have a good day, man. Yeah, cheers. Bye. Bye. That was Matt Esherwood, a user experience designer and instructor based in London. You can get the full transcript of this interview on our blog at learnnetto.com forward slash blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please review us on iTunes and subscribe to our newsletter to get future interviews in your inbox on learnnetto.com.